a young African-American man, disappears in 1964. Is his disappearance the result of racial issues? A young mother of four leaves home in the middle of the night, leaving a note that she would be back. Did she ever really plan on coming back? A young mother goes out for a few drinks with friends, but after telling everyone bye, her car never leaves the parking lot. Is her disappearance the work of a serial killer, or is she still out there? Welcome to State of Missing. Welcome to State of Missing, the podcast formerly known as Never To Be Seen Again. If you are new here, welcome. If you are an OG listener, welcome back. And if you are an OG listener, I'm sure you have quite a few questions, which I'm hoping to answer at some point in the beginning of this episode. Um, The first thing that you may have noticed, if you were an original listener, is the name change. I did a little bit of rebranding and changed the name to State of Missing because I just felt like it fit better. Um, So we will henceforth be known as State of Missing, the podcast. If you listened originally and caught the first 30 episodes, um, which if you haven't, I suggest that you go back and listen. Maybe not some of my best work, but definitely some good cases. Um, Anyway, if you were a listener then, I'm sure you're wondering what happened. I'm going to get into that. But I do need to tell you about some changes from this point on. So... I have decided that instead of airing or releasing an episode every week, I'm going to go ahead and release a new episode every two weeks, just so that it doesn't put such a strain on me. I've got new recording equipment, new recording software, uh, so producing, you know, researching, recording, editing, producing a whole episode takes a little bit of time. And it takes more time than I have in a week with a full-time job and a family. So we're going to move to every two weeks. And hopefully uh, that makes a better listening experience for you. So with that being said, let me get into why it is that it has been so long since the release of a new episode. If you listened to the podcast before and you paid really close attention you know that I live in Louisiana. After the release of episode 30, Hurricane Laura made landfall in Louisiana. And that's pretty bad uh, or bad enough for most Louisiana residents when a hurricane comes through. But in my particular case, um, sometimes things get a little more complicated. See, what I hadn't mentioned before is that my full-time job, my career, is in law enforcement. So when Hurricane makes landfall, or is projected to make landfall in Louisiana, specifically the area where I work, it's an all-hands-on-deck situation, which means that we get called in and we work every day until power is restored and business is back up and running, Uh, things are back to normal. 
So after when Hurricane Laura hit, that's what kind of went on. I was um, working every day for an extended period of time. It might have been like two weeks, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less, um, which is not bad. Uh, I'm used to it. I've been through hurricanes before uh, while working in law enforcement, but it didn't leave me a whole lot of time to research, record, and edit episodes to release to the public. Not just because I was working, but because uh, when Hurricane Laura hit, it significantly damaged the house that I was living in. So I had a large tree fall on the residence and I didn't have, we didn't have power in the house um, until we moved out about two months later for, so for about two months, we were living off of generator power and finding a house was very difficult because everybody else was also looking for a place to live. So we stayed in that house for about two months running off a of generator power because we couldn't restore power to the house because of the damage. But during that period of time, Hurricane Delta also came through, which put me once again in another situation where I was working every day. This time with Hurricane Delta, though, we had a whole lot more water uh, and less damage because Hurricane Laura had already wiped out most of everything. So it was just a whole bunch of water for Delta. And uh, so I was working every day until, you know, things are back to normal after Hurricane Delta as well. As well. So eventually um, we packed all of our stuff and we found a house and we moved into the place where we're at now. Uh, so we took a bit of time, we set up our new house, we did all that. And then when everything started to settle, um, it really became apparent to me that the stress of everything that was going on was taking a toll on my mental health. So I really had to kind of take a step back and evaluate um, how I was going to deal with that and what I was going to do. And I'm here to tell you that, you know, obviously my mental health is much better, but part of that process was really considering if I was going to continue to produce this podcast. Obviously I ended up saying, yes, um, I do love putting this podcast together. It's time consuming and I don't always have time so uh, I agreed to myself to come back with a little bit of uh, leeway to really consider what's important in my life. So, uh, and, you know, also I had a, a whole um, crowd of people cheering me on, you know, telling me I can do it. And so here I am. And thank you to those people who really wanted to see the production of this podcast complete. So with that all said and done, I am in good mental health. I have a you know somewhat clear schedule. I'm not perfectly clear on my schedule, but um, we're back. I'm going to start producing episodes again, and I'm hoping to produce more quality episodes than I did before. So it'll be it'll be good to see uh, how far this podcast is going to go. Now. Let's talk about something real quick. I wasn't planning on releasing 
or revealing the fact that I am in law enforcement. And there, I had my own reasons for that. Um, I didn't want you, the listening audience, to get the get the idea that any of the information that I release on this podcast is information that I have obtained through my profession. I do not make contacts and ask about these cases and get secrets to these cases through my law enforcement um, connections. Everything that I tell you on these episodes and this podcast is information that I have found online. What my uh, profession does provide is a little bit of an idea of how these investigations are supposed to work. Not that they always work the way they are supposed to, but I sometimes have an idea of where the investigation is going based on the research that I do or why law enforcement might have looked at something the way that they looked at it. Sometimes I'll straight up tell you I do get mad because the investigations on some of these cases, I feel like monkeys are running the investigation and it makes me mad. If you've listened before, I'm sure you've caught me get a little heated about uh, investigations before. But in any case, um, I just wanted to put that out there that yes, I am in law enforcement, but no, my profession has absolutely nothing to do with this podcast other than offer, offer a little bit of an insight into the investigation. But I do not use any of my resources to obtain information. I would never want to hurt an investigation by releasing information that should not be released to the public or should not be released to the public yet. Okay, so with all of the business uh, cleared up, let's talk about today's episode. So, um, because uh, Louisiana weather was the cause of my little hiatus, I decided that I'm going to go ahead and release the long-awaited Louisiana episode. Now, this is going to be a pretty big episode. I have six cases, but um, we're going to split those six cases up into two episodes. You're going to get a part one, uh, which is today's episode, and a part two, which will be released in two weeks. Uh, We're going to do three cases each all very, very interesting cases. Uh, the, the, today's episode, I'm sorry, today's episode, uh, is gonna have some pretty, I don't, I don't want to listen. I have never found cases or haven't found cases yet. Like I found in Louisiana. These are some really twisted, messed up roller coaster ride of of some cases. So you're going to need to hold on to your seat while you're listening to this because it's going to take you on a trip. Um, some in a good way, some in a bad way. Uh, but you're just going to be left scratching your head. Definitely at the end of this episode and probably at the end of episode two as well. What I'm going to tell you right now as, as well is that in episode two, I'm going to be telling the case of or the case that got me into this because of this whole podcast. 
gonna tell you that story on episode two, so make sure you stay tuned for that. So uh, this episode is gonna be pretty long. I have one case in particular that's just, it's gonna take me a bit to tell, so we're gonna go ahead and jump right into it, and welcome to episode 31, Louisiana, part one. Okay, let's talk about the case of Joseph Edward. So before my research, I had never heard of this case. And after the research, I kind of realized why. Um, it has some police corruption, some racism, um, some not too pleasant things to discuss, which is probably why it was kept kind of quiet. Uh, this case is considered solved uh, by the Department of Justice and we'll get into why the Department of Justice became involved, but the Department of Justice has pretty much deemed that Joseph uh, Edwards is deceased, although his body has never been located. It's going to be a pretty long case. I have a whole lot of information. A lot of the information that I got on this case came from a, uh, a paper released uh, by the Department of Justice in regards to this case. It's not very hard to find. I'm going to tell you about it more at the end, uh, and you'll be able to find it if you are interested in reading about it yourself. So, uh, I don't have a lot of information about Joseph Edward, but real quickly, I'm going to tell you what I do know. Joseph Edward, or uh, Joe Ed, as he was known, is case number MP4093 in NamUs and case number 3944DMLA in the Doe Network. Uh, see, he, uh, his exact age is unknown, but he was reported as being in his early 20s. He was born on February 12th of 1939, 1940, or 1941. He had burns, scars on his body because he was scalded as a child, and he had recently also suffered third-degree burns in a vehicle accident shortly before he disappeared. His height and his weight are unknown. Um, so, Joed has been missing since July 12th of 1964. So this is going to be an older case. And I believe July 12th was a Sunday, if uh, my, what I looked up is correct. He was reported missing from Vidalia, Louisiana. Now, Vidalia, Louisiana is the location of the Shamrock Motel, which is where Joed was working at when he disappeared. So Joed's mother lived in Natchez, Mississippi, but Joed lived with his grandparents most of the time, and they lived between Clayton and Lake Concordia, which is uh, in Concordia Parish. So this is all going to take place in Concordia Parish. He did have a girlfriend at the time of his disappearance, but you'll see why that's a little insignificant when we get into the case. Um, let's see what else I got for you. Um, so, like I mentioned, he worked at the Shamrock Motel. Uh, how long he'd worked there is really kind of a toss-up. Some, some places say he had been working there for more than two years. Some say it was only a couple months. Um, but at the Shamrock Hotel, he was a porter and a handyman. He was last seen in the early morning hours of July 12th of 1964 after he finished his shift at the Shamrock. 
He was reported missing on July 19th, so seven days later, and he was reported missing through the Vidalia Police Department. There was also a, reported, a report uh, filed through Natchez PD two days after the filing of Vidalia PD, so the one through Natchez was uh, reported on July 21st. So, Joed had a car also uh, that he was seen getting into at the time of his disappearance, which was his vehicle, I believe, or registered to him, I believe. He had purchased this car on July 6th, so only a few days before he went missing, and it was a 1958 Buick. Now, his Buick, um, there is some discrepancy about the color. The Department of Justice... Um, is white over green, uh, says that the Buick is white over green, but other places say that it was blue over beige. So, but it's not really here nor there because that vehicle has been found, although the correct color has never been clarified. So, let's get into this. Someone unknown reported the the Joed's Buick abandoned near the Dixie Lane bowling alleys on Vidalia Faraday Highway. Now, this person reported the vehicle between July 12th and July 23rd. Several witnesses said that they looked into the car before it was reported to the police. Some people said that they saw a belt loop, a, a belt looped around the steering wheel. I'm sorry, I'm sure that sounded harsh. <laughs> but anyway, the belt was looped around the steering wheel, allegedly. Some said that they saw a necktie hanging from the inside mirror. Most people said they saw no blood, but there was one person who said that they saw a silver dollar-sized spot of blood under the steering wheel. A couple of people reported that they saw mud in the vehicle. So, let's talk about this investigation. How do you think it is going? Well... From several accounts, it seemed like Vidalia Police Department was not investigating Joed's disappearance very thoroughly, very intensely. And you'll find out why that might be the case. Um, the FBI does become involved pretty soon, and the FBI actually becomes involved uh, and begins their own investigation on July 23rd of 1964, only days after Joed was last seen. From what I understand, they became involved at the request of the Department of Justice when it was reported by someone that someone else claimed Joed was in jail in Faraday. Now, the FBI took this information and called all the local law enforcement agencies and discovered that Joed was, in fact, not in jail. FBI also ended up finding at this point that the local agencies were not actively investigating the disappearance because Joe Wed was considered, quote, merely a missing person. So I'm going to get back to the car in a minute, uh, but I do want to talk about some other things real quick. In September or October of 1964, a commercial fisherman found some flesh-like matter in a container submerged in the Mississippi River. This matter was found near Deer Park, Louisiana, which is about 15 to 20 minutes from Vidalia. The FBI didn't find out about this flesh-like matter uh, reportedly being found until sometime later. Of course, there isn't much about what came about from this flesh-like matter, but it does get mentioned in interviews later. 
but who reported it to the FBI is not known. And I don't know what happened with or to that flesh-like matter. Now keep in mind, DNA testing wasn't a thing in 1964. So if the flesh matter did really exist, I doubt it was collected and held for later testing, especially when no one was sure what crime it was connected to, if it was even connected to a crime. All right, so let's get back to the car. As I mentioned, Joed's car was seen on Vidalia Faraday Highway near that bowling alley shortly after he was last he was seen for the last time. Apparently, some unknown person reported to Concordia Parish Sheriff's Office that the car had been at that location for a while. They actually say it it was a continued presence. So CPSO Deputy William or Bill Ogden takes the complaint. And Bill Ogden sent Cecil Beatty of Cecil Beatty's uh, golf station to tow the car away. Now, apparently, Deputy Ogden did not make a record of the complaint or even examine the car. But Ogden later told the FBI that he did check the registration, ran the license plate uh, of this vehicle to find who the registered owner was. And he remembers that... Um, who it was registered to, he remembered who it was registered to because he remembered that he didn't uh, like this person. But I don't know if the registered owner of that vehicle is actually Joed, although I'm pretty sure it was, or if it was just somebody else that registered the vehicle in their name uh, for Joed. Now, as I mentioned, several people saw the car sitting there until it was ultimately removed. The accounts of what people saw inside, of course, differ. Some people saw the belt loop around the steering wheel. Some saw the necktie. Some saw mud. And then that one person saw the blood stain. The Natchez police chief at the time did examine the car. I don't know at what point, but he said he didn't see anything unusual except for the men's belt uh, that he said had been looped around the steering wheel and the driver's door handle. Now, that seemed a little bit weird to me, and that was the only account of that that I could find. The exact description that he said is that it was looped around the steering wheel and around the door handle, which seems to me like you're trying to keep the door closed. Uh, but that's the only instance in, uh, where I've heard that the, I'm sorry, where I've heard that the uh, belt was looped in that manner. Anyway, um, he said, uh, the police chief, he said that he didn't see any evidence of violence inside the vehicle or any damage. So there was no evidence of a struggle. And that's what he, I'm concluding he's trying to get across with that, that there was no indication of a struggle in the vehicle. So, so at some point, the car ends up being towed to Purvis Pontiac in Faraday, uh, Louisiana, which is where the car was purchased from. There apparently was some debate on if it was ever actually towed to Beatty's Gulf Station. Cecil Beatty himself couldn't actually recall if he had towed the vehicle, but other people had confirmed that it was at his station at some point. I think it happened that the vehicle was towed to Beatty's, but because Joed wasn't around to make payments, it was repossessed by Purvis Pontiac, and I assume that they resold it, um, but I'm not sure what actually happened to the car after that point. 
So as far as the investigation goes, nothing happens for quite some time, as you may believe. Then in August of 1967, so we're talking about uh, years later, the FBI initiated a full investigation. Now why? Well, they had received uh, apparently some interesting enough information from someone while they were in the midst of another unrelated investigation. So this person gave information in that Joed may have been the victim of Klan violence. This person specifically pointed to a Klan offshoot group called the Silver Dollar Group, or SDG. Uh, about the same time that they get this information is the same time that they find out about that flesh-like matter that was discovered in 1964. The FBI conducts this investigation until May of 1968, so about a year. During, the, during this period of the FBI's in investigation, more than 250 people were interviewed and they conducted multiple scuba, scuba searches and forensic tests. Now, the case file at uh, the end of this period of investigation in May of 1968, the case file ended up being about 620 pages long. They developed many hypotheses and they have an idea about which of the theories that they've developed is the most likely to have occurred. Of course, Joed has never been found though, so um, it's a little hard to say that one thing or another happened with 100% certainty. We're going to go over some of the theories, but first I need to tell you about a witness. Now you can find the name of this person online, but I'm just going to refer to him as Mr. S. Some places say that uh, Mr. S was the manager of the Dixie Lane bowling alley, that bowling alley near where Joette's car was found. Um, him being the manager doesn't necessarily matter so much because uh, what he was a witness to, he saw while he was traveling to Faraday. Um, and that's what some witnesses say. So Mr. S says that in July of 1964, presumably around the night of Joe Ed's disappearance, he saw a car matching Joe Ed's being stopped by a white 1964 Oldsmobile. Now, the Oldsmobile had no law enforcement emblems, but Mr. S said it had two rear whip antennas and a red dashboard light. The traffic stop was on the Vidalia Faraday Highway east of the bowling alley at or near the location where Joanne's Buick was later found abandoned. Mr. S said that the white Oldsmobile was driven by an overweight white male. He also said that there were two other white men standing by the open driver's side door of the Buick. Now, Mr. S said it appeared that the Buick was only occupied by one person, the driver. He said the driver was wearing a green maybe plaid sport shirt and he couldn't see the driver well enough in the dark to say if the male driving was African-American or Caucasian. He did say he passed the traffic stop and continued on his way. 
But shortly after passing the cars, Mr. S said that the white Oldsmobile sped by him, but it was now occupied by several men. Okay, so now I'm like, now, like me, I'm sure you're thinking, was this the police and was that Joed being pulled over? But let's look into it a little. Um, an intensive investigation determined that the only local law enforcement agency that used a 1964 Oldsmobile with two rear whip antennas was Vidalia Police Department. You know, the police department that Joed was reported missing through. That Vidalia Police Department car had a red light mounted on the roof and not on the dashboard like Mr. S said he saw. Some witnesses said that the Vidalia Police Department officers, particularly the Chief Johnny Lee or Bud Spinks, had one or more portable flashing red lights that could be mounted to the dashboard. In March of 1968, Mr. S was interviewed for a third time, at, and at that interview, he was shown pictures of that Vidalia Police Department car. Mr. S said he did not believe that it was identical to the Oldsmobile he had seen, um, but he also said he had seen the Vidalia Police Department Oldsmobile in 1964, about two weeks after that traffic stop. And at that time, he had concluded that the Vidalia Police Department Oldsmobile was not the car that he had seen that night on Vidalia Faraday Highway. Also, the Silver Dollar Group leader, Riley Jackson or Red Glover, had purchased a white 1964 Oldsmobile in late May of 1964. But apparently, there wasn't any real investigation to see if... Uh, Glover's Oldsmobile matched Mr. S's description of the car he had seen that night. So let's talk about some of the theories that there are uh, in regards to Joe Ed's So I mentioned earlier that Joe Ed had been working at the Shamrock, and there's a little bit of debate of in regards to how long he had actually been working. Um, employment records only indicated that Joe Ed started working there on June 8th of 1964, so just shortly before his disappearance. On June 27th of 1964, at the Shamrock Hotel, a child drowned in their pool. Reportedly, a young African-American male employee jumped into the pool in an unsuccess unsuccessful attempt to save the child. Apparently, the child's mother was a sex worker. And I only mention this because she was interviewed in October of 1967 by the FBI. She apparently had three dates arranged by an African-American bellhop. So they end up finding out who this bellhop is that is arranging this mother's dates and they speak to him and um, he gives a description that is similar to the woman's uh, in regards to this African-American male who jumped into the water to try and save her son. And they kind of drew the conclusion for a brief period of time that this was Joe Ed that jumped into the pool. 
the thing was, though, that neither the Data Ranger or the mother had ever heard the name Joed or Joseph Edward before. So while, you know, it was a theory that Joed had tried to save this kid, some other people thought that this African-American male that jumped into the pool could have been a 15 or 16-year-old kitchen worker. So then there was rumor that at the time of the drowning, Joe Wed is in one of the rooms with the child's mother. This, of course, turned out to be false because witnesses saw the child's mother near the pool at the time of the drowning. Then there was some other rumors that Joe Wed was helping arrange dates for white sex workers. And it, it was also rumored that Joe Wed helped uh, a madam arrange dates for her girls. Now, let's talk about Joe Wed and his alleged uh, appreciation for the Caucasian female. So there was someone who Joe Wed told a story to well, there are more than one someone's and more than one story, but anyway. So someone said that Joe Ed had recounted to them something that had happened at the Shamrock. Joe Ed said that a white female guest had called reception and asked for something to be brought to her room. I'm not sure what that something was. Um, they never mentioned it in articles, but I'll just say it doesn't really matter. So Joe Ed said that he brought the requested item to the reported room. He knocked on the door and was told to come in. And apparently when Joe Ed entered the room, the female was in there just hanging out naked. Joe Ed said he immediately left the room. I guess a white male entered the room as Joe Ed was leaving, but this man doesn't see Joe Ed, uh, exit the room. So then the man walked back out of the room and just stared down the hall at Joed, I guess. So here's another story. Um, a guy that was working part-time in the kitchen of the Shamrock in July of 64 reported this story. He said that sometime before Joed's disappearance, Joed went to the rear door of the kitchen and spoke to him. Joed told him that he had entered a guest room and something provoked a male guest to point a handgun at him. This guy telling Joed's account thought that the man may have been mad at Joed because he saw the female guest naked. He said the same night Joed was off duty and needed a shave and asked one of the kitchen employees to go to the bar and get him a bottle of whiskey. He said he never saw Joed again uh, after that. So this second story corroborates the first, but could this have been the night of Doe's disappearance? Hold on, I have just one more story. This this next version or next story, I believe, is told by Joe's cousin. So this story wasn't told until many years later, like between 2007 and 2010. Anyway. Uh, this person said I told him he had a, a white girlfriend at the Shamrock and that he had been threatened by white men. Joed told him once that he was in a room with a white woman and that um, 
a white man had burst in and quote-unquote caught them. He said after that, that there were several white men who wanted to kill him. Joed said that the white woman threatened to tell if the man hurt Joed. Uh, so I guess theoretically in this uh, scenario, they didn't because the woman was saying that she was going to tell on the other guys. This man said Joed told him about several close escapes. After hearing about all of those close escapes, the man begged Joed to quit his job at the motel. And yet another person who had known Joed for about five or six years was told by Joed about two months before his disappearance um, that he had met about five white women who were very nice to him. Now, this doesn't really um, hold any significance in my opinion, other than obviously, you know, some white women were really nice to Joed. There wasn't, in this account, there wasn't any report of any violence or threats or anything like that. I think it was just trying to drive home the fact that Joed kind of had um, uh, a preference for the Caucasian female. Now, this friend who had made that statement uh, said that, or drew the conclusion that these women who were nice to Joed were employees of the Shamrock because Joed Joed had implied that he had known them over a period of time, something that he probably wouldn't have said if they were just guests. Apparently, many people have warned Joed that he was playing with fire when it came to white women. One of Joed's relatives told the FBI that Joed was a ladies' man and often had several girlfriends. Joed never mentioned their names or whether they were black or white. This person also clarified that they had no knowledge of white women that Joed may have dated or made advances towards. I think a female relative also had something to say. She said uh, about two weeks before his disappearance, Joed had told her he was having an affair with a white woman. He also apparently told her that he had been caught with a white woman in a room while working at the hotel in uh, working at a hotel in Natchez, because um, Joe Ed used to work at a hotel in Natchez before he started working at the Shamrock, or he might have worked at him at the same time. Uh, she said that Joe Ed laughed about the two stories, and she, he didn't at all appear worried about you know what had allegedly happened. So <clears throat> Joe Ed did work at a hotel in Natchez before he began working at the Shamrock. Like I said, for a period of time, he was holding down two jobs. I think two of them, uh, he worked at a couple of hotels, including the Shamrock and this other hotel in Natchez. And then there was another job that I can't immediately recall uh, where it was. So the question here with this hypothesis is, did Joe have, did Joe Ed have interest or become involved with a white woman? And if so, did the, this make someone mad enough to make Joed disappear? Well, this theory is close, but not quite it. So now I'm gonna tell you a condensed version of what the FBI and the Department of Justice believe caused Joed's disappearance. So let's talk about somebody. Uh, let's talk about the clerk for the Shamrock Motel. Obviously, she's not the only clerk, but 
Um, she is a clerk. This person's name is Iona Perry. Now, Miss Perry was a, of course, white woman who worked as a clerk at the same time that Joed was employed at the Shamrock. Miss Perry uh, walked with crutches because of a bout with polio, but that's not necessarily relevant uh, wholly to this story, um, but you'll see why I have to mention it in a minute. What is relevant is that Iona Perry was dating a man named James Buford Goss. Goss was a probation officer and, oh, he was married, uh, though not to Miss Perry. About three days before Joed's disappearance, he and uh, Miss Perry were working at the Shamrock. According to Miss Perry, she was walking to the restroom when Joed either tried to or did kiss her. Some places say that he did kiss her. Some say some places say that he tried to. In any case, the accusation is that Joed attempted to make an advance towards her. So. Um, her story is that it was unwanted and she rejected his advances. Uh, so Miss Perry goes and she tells her suitor, Goss, about the incident. Now, as you may have guessed, Goss was upset about this. Presumably, he was mad for two reasons. One, because someone else made a move on a woman he considered his, but two, because Joed was a black man in the 1960s, making a move on a white woman. So when Miss Perry tells Goss about this incident, Goss wants to find Joed and teach him a lesson. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, Goss couldn't find Joed that night. But obviously this wasn't over. The next day, Goss goes to a friend of his, Vidalia Police Chief Bud Spinks, and Goss tells Spinks about what happened to Miss Perry and says he wants Joed charged with assault. Spinks says, okay, but I got to go talk to Miss Perry. So Spinks shows up to the boarding house where Miss Perry is staying and says he wants to talk to, or wants to take a statement from her so that he can charge Joed. And Miss Perry says, no, I don't want to press charges on Joed. So, okay, so... What more can be done? I guess we'll have to find out. Uh, Miss Perry later recounted, as Sphinx was leaving without her statement, she overheard him say, presumably to Goss, that Joed would be quote unquote taken care of. So remember earlier when I said that the FBI launched a full investigation into Joed's case after they received information during another investigation? Well, Here's how that went. A guy named Ed Morris told FBI investigators that Kenneth Norman Head had admitted involvement in Joed's murder. So is who, so who is Ed Morris? Well, Ed Morris was a Klansman who was a confidential informant for the FBI. Kenneth Head was a fellow Klansman. Head also implicated that the Silver Dollar groups, uh, the KKK offshoot, well, their leader, Riley Jackson Red Glover, who I'd mentioned before, and another member, Homer James Buck Horton, were also involved in Joed's disappearance. 
Morris told the FBI that Goss had asked Spinks to do something to the Negro because he had insulted a crippled employee at the Shamrock. Uh, presumably, this quote-unquote crippled employee would be Miss Perry. And that's why I mentioned that she had to walk with Kane, uh, with crutches. So Goss makes the request of Spinks. So what does Chief Spinks do? Well, he goes to the Silver Dollar Group leader, Glover, and asks him to take care of Joe Ed. Morris told the FBI uh, that this is what happened. Head implied that Joe Ed was in the Mississippi River saying that his body wouldn't be popping up in the river. This brings us to the flesh-like matter. Apparently, in 1964, that fisherman found that, that flesh-like uh, that flesh in an area which was once a main channel of the Mississippi River. It had come out of an icebox that was buried in the lake bottom. Multiple informants had said that the KKK had hung a black man and skinned him alive before throwing his body in the river. Unfortunately, the fisherman's find was never conclusively proven to be human remains. I'm not sure how or why they're saying it was never conclusively. I don't know if they tested it or, you know, whatever the case may be. But this is what it says is that it wasn't conclusively proven to be So because of the discovery of the flesh matter along with Morris's information, when FBI started thoroughly investigating in 1967, the lake was searched with divers. But three years later, nothing was found, of course. So the FBI did interview Goss in 1967. Goss did refer, uh, reference the find of the flesh matter. And he said after the matter was found, he asked Concordia Parish Sheriff's Deputy Bill Ogden about Joe Ed. Ogden told Goss that he should sink his victims in a location out of reach of fishermen. Boss is like, well, what do you mean? Allegedly, Ogden said, you ought to know, you put it there. Before Goss died, he told his daughter that Ogden, as well as fellow CPSO uh, Concordia Parish Deputy Frank DeLauder, had tried to frame him for murder. There is another story from a witness that links Ogden and DeLauder to Joette's disappearance. Ogden had reportedly told this witness that he and DeLauder had received a complaint against Joed and that they pulled him over in his Buick at the bowling alley between Faraday and Vidalia. He said Joed then ran from the Buick and over the Mississippi River levee and DeLauder chased him on foot but that Joed had eventually got away. The third story says that clan members took Joed to the levee possibly to whip him and that they overdid it, after which point they buried him on the levee. The FBI investigated Joe Ed's case uh, for many years. Eventually, they named seven suspects. I'm going to tell you those seven suspects, and hopefully you'll remember the names from the story. So there's probation officer James Buford Goss, Silver Dollar leader Ray Lee Jackson, Red Glover, Silver Dollar Group member Kenneth Norman Head and 
Homer Thomas, but Horton Silver Dollar Group member and Concordia Sheriff's deputies, William Howard, Bill Ogden, and Frank DeLauder, and Vidalia Police Chief and Town Marshal Johnny Lee Bud Spinks. Now, no one was ever charged in Joed's disappearance, and all but one of the seven suspects had died by 2004. The last to die was Goss in 2009. In February of 2013, the U.S. Department of Justice Civil Rights Division issued a notice to close file on Joed's case. They cited that Joed is presumed dead, likely murdered. You can find the Department of Justice notice to close file document online. I did, and it provides an extensive look into the case. I used it for a lot of what I told you today, but the document is 35 pages long and I had to condense a lot of it as best as I could. But if you want all of the details, it's not very difficult to find. So while the case is considered closed and likely suspects are deceased, Joseph Edwards' body still has not been found. His family is still seeking closure, which would most likely include being able to lay Joed to rest in a respectful and proper manner. If you would happen to have any information on this case, the FBI is the point of contact and no other agency involved is responsible for the case anymore. Did that last case just blow your mind? Well, guess what? I got another one for you, so go ahead, sit tight because we're about to get into this one and this is the case of Nelda Louise Hardwick. Uh, she is case number MP625 in Mamus and case number 1002 DFLA in the Doe Network. So our, this case is just as interesting as the last one if not more so. I just don't have as much information uh, as the last one. But what I do have makes this case certainly memorable. So Nelda's disappearance takes place in Lake Charles, Louisiana in 1993. Now, uh, I was pretty young. I'm going to age myself a little bit, but I was young when Nelda disappeared. So I don't think I would have remembered this in the news uh, media or whatever. But I certainly don't recall ever hearing about it since. Um, it's not very far from where I grew up and where I live, so I would have heard about it. It is, it's not that far away. It's something that I should have at least heard of once in my life. And I'll tell you, when I found this case, I was like, I don't know anything about this disappearance. So let's talk about Nelda. Uh, she is a white female with dark brown hair and hazel eyes. She was born on uh, January 3rd of 1959. She was 34 when she went missing, which would make her about 62 now. She was only 5 foot 3 and 110 pounds, so a small framed lady. Uh, and she was last seen wearing blue jeans and sandals. Uh, it doesn't say anything about a shirt or anything like that. Nelda has a full set of dentures and her left leg is shorter than her right and thus she kind of walks with a pretty bad limp. She also has numerous surgical scars on her head and body. 
So Nelda was living on 18th Street in Lake Charles with her boyfriend and her four children. On the evening of October 14, 1993, everything seemed normal. Nelda made sure that the children were bathed and then put to bed. And Nelda's boyfriend goes to bed as well, but Nelda stays up. Perhaps she had some stuff to do before she could lay down herself. But the next morning, her boyfriend wakes up and he does not see Nelda. As he's looking for her, he does find a note. And it was a note written by Nelda, just saying that she was going to the store and would be back shortly. The presumption was that the note was left for the boyfriend sometime the previous evening, uh, just in case he woke up and saw that she was not home. The problem is that she obviously didn't come back. By all accounts, Nelda was a loving and devoted mother, so leaving her four children for a, a long period of time was abnormal. The boyfriend calls police and reports Nelda missing, and when she doesn't show back up, uh, they begin an investigation. So remember this is 1993 where there are no cell phones so calling Nelda to check on her was not a thing and unless she found a payphone and called you you're, you probably wouldn't know you know where to begin to look. So Nelda is reported missing and nothing really happens. She doesn't come home and no one hears from her uh, at all. Police investigate the disappearance and eventually they suspect foul play and classify her case as a homicide. I'm not 100% sure why they classified her case as such. Maybe they found some evidence or something like that. But, you know, that's where the investigation into her disappearance sits. And that's all I really have to tell you about Nelda's disappearance. Now, I already know you're saying, Laura, but you said that this was going to be interesting. And it is. Just sit tight for a minute. I have to tell you about something else. I need to talk about a Jane Doe. Actually, this is case number 178 UFMS in the Doe Network. For me to tell you about this Jane Doe, we have to go to Hancock County, Mississippi in 1998. A truck driver is traveling along I-10 East near exit 2 at around the 4-mile marker. It's May 8th of 1998 at about 10.40 in the morning. The driver looks and sees the body of a woman. She was face down with her head towards a wooded area slanted in a grassy area. Police quickly determine that, number one, the woman is dead, but number two, that she had been struck by a vehicle and thrown about 230 feet from the road. Now, police have no idea who this woman is. Um, they don't have, she doesn't have any identification on her. So they, in order to get an identification of her, they put a description of her in the situation on the news. When they do that, a group of teenagers comes forward. This group of teenagers said that they had been traveling in that area between 2 and 3 in the morning, uh, the morning that this body was discovered. They were in a green 1998 Mitsubishi when they hit something that they thought was a deer. Thinking it was just a deer, they just kept traveling. They didn't even realize that it was a person until it was reported that a body had been found. Now, let's talk about the autopsy of this Jane. 
She had several injuries from the accident, including a fracture of the cervical spine, compression, contusion of the spinal cord, lacerated, uh, abrased scalp, a deep laceration of the right popliteal region, uh, that, which is a knee joint, and left heel, a fractured right femur, and multiple deep abrasions of the trunk, extremities, and face. There was a hair resembling her own, her own entangled in the fingers of her left hand. She also had about 21 broken ribs and a lacerated liver. Furthermore, they were able to determine that this Jane had eaten, recently eaten french fries and pickle slices and that she had consumed a thick brown liquid, but there was no meat in her system. She had numerous small hydrated uh, cysts in her oviducts. Now, hydrated cysts are caused from a parasite that is accidentally ingested when consuming contaminated or unsanitary food, like if she would have been eating from a dumpster or a trash can. So what does this Jane look like? Well, let me give you the details. They believe she was between 37 and 42, between 5'3 and 5'5", five five, and between 130 and 135 pounds. Her hair was naturally brown and curly between 16 to 18 inches. Her hair had been dyed slightly different color, which uh, gave it a reddish brown appearance. Her eyes were gray and described as very unique in color. She had a vaccination scar on her left arm. She had an old hysterectomy scar from a C-section running from her navel down to her pubis. They believe that the woman gave birth to at least two children, maybe more. She suffered from black lung, emphysema, and chronic bronchitis. There was a thick mucus in her lungs. Um, she had mild S. Uh, osteoarthritis, I'm sorry, in her spine. She was tan and freckled with bug bites on her body. Her legs and underarms were unshaven. Her fingernails and toenails were short, uneven, and dirty. Her ears were not pierced and a tox screen showed no alcohol or drugs in her system. She was wearing a, uh, she was wearing bongo brand jeans and a black hooded Spalding active wear sweatshirt with Florida on the front. Uh, she had on some blue velvet slippers, but she wasn't wearing any socks or underwear. So just uh, a little something that I thought was interesting. They found seven ephedrine, what they call ephedrine guafathine mini pills in her right back jean pocket. They said guafafine, but I think it's ephedrine guafenicin, which is just a medication for asthma and or bronchitis. It thins the mucus uh, so it can be coughed up, but I didn't see any indication that this medication was in her system, so maybe she had just gotten them and hadn't taken them yet. So that's this Jane. Now, as smart as I know that you listeners are, I understand that some of you are connecting dots right now, and you know why I told you about this Jane. This Jane was found about uh, 250 miles away from where Nelda went missing, and this is five years later. 
The coroner that examined the Jane said that there was only a one in a thousand chance that she was not Nelda. He speculated that Nelda had been abducted in 1993 and held captive for all these years. His theory is that she was finally able to escape only to be struck and killed on the highway, which sucks if that is really what happened. Here's the thing though. That coroner statement didn't come until 2013. That's when Nelda's family started connecting some dots. They saw the autopsy photo of the Jane and knew that it was Nelda. Not just that, all or most of Jane's reported scars were similar to that of Nelda's. Not to mention, apparently, the Jane didn't have teeth, and if you remember, neither did Nelda. She had dentures. So the family goes to a judge to have Jane exhumed and to compare her DNA. The judge eventually grants the exhumation order for the Jane. So what do you think happened? You have to know that if they determined it was Nelda, I wouldn't be telling you this case. Here's what happened. They go to the Jane Doe's grave site, they dig, and they find the casket. They open the casket, and what do they see? I'll tell you what they saw. They saw a man. A male body had somehow ended up in the, James Doe, in the Jane Doe's grave. I'll tell you how it may have happened, though. Um, when Hurricane Katrina passed through Hancock County in 2005, some of the graves and the grave markers were disturbed, and they may have had to replace the marker and it ended up in the wrong place and they had to rebury some of the bodies and they ended up in the wrong place. So it, she probably got mixed up because of uh, Hurricane Katrina. Regardless, they now had no way of knowing where the Jane Doe's body was and, and they couldn't determine where she had actually been reburied. So put the dirt back in the hole and they walk away, possibly never being able to positively identify the Hancock County Jane Doe or provide answers, answers to Nelda's family. No plans for further exhumation have been made, and I guess I understand why. I'll just leave Nelda's case with this. If you know anything about the disappearance of Nelda Hardwick, you should contact the Calcutchy Parish Sheriff's Office and if you know anything about the possible identity of the Hancock County Jane Doe, you should contact the Hancock County Coroner's Office. So the last and final case for this episode um, is going to be a little bit connected somewhat to Nelda's case. And how, you may ask? Well, the Hancock County Jane Doe believed to possibly be Nelda Hardwick could also be the subject of our next case. Now I'm not going to go through the Jane's info again, but if you need to go back and listen to it and see if you can make the connections, I suggest that you do this. This is the disappearance of Faye Aline Self. She is case number MP1370 in NamUs and case number 1410DFLA in the domain. Uh, we're going to call her uh, Faye, although I think that everybody mostly called her Aline. So Faye's disappearance takes place uh, almost 10 years before Nelda's. 
to talk about this case, we're going to head on over to Armistead, Louisiana. Before we get into it, let's talk about Faye. She is a Caucasian female born on October 18th of 1956, which would make her 26 at the time of her disappearance in 64 now. She was between five foot and five foot two and only about a hundred pounds. She has brown hair and gray eyes. And at the time of her disappearance, her hair was dyed blonde and cut short. She had a hysterectomy scar on her abdomen, a vaccination scar on her left arm, um, and a scar on her right leg. She also wears a, an, um, an upper denture plate. She was last seen wearing jeans and a pullover top. Now, before we get into it, I will warn you, just as the previous two cases, this is also not a straightforward case with lack of information or complications. We are going to have some twists in this one uh, too, so go ahead and buckle up. So let's go back to March 30th of 1983. On that evening, uh, Faye left her baby daughter with her mother because she had plans to go out. Now, I do believe that Faye had two daughters. Her oldest was from what I could find 10 at the time. I'm not sure where she was at at the time of her mother's disappearance. Most articles only mention the younger daughter that she left with her mother, and I couldn't find her age at the time, although uh, the younger daughter's age, although it is said that she was just a baby, so maybe less than a year old or so. Anyway, uh, Faye drops off the baby and went on over to the Wagon Wheel Bar and Restaurant on Highway 1 in Armistead. Faye was hanging out with one female friend and two male friends at this bar. I'm not sure what time it was, uh, but Faye tells her friends that she's leaving because she needs to go pick up her infant daughter from her mother and she had to go to work the next day. Seems like she's being pretty responsible um, at this point in time. So she tells her friends bye and walks out of the bar. Now, you already know where the problem is. They never showed up to pick up her daughter that night or even the following day. The next day when Faye hadn't shown up, her brother and her dad go looking for her. They don't find her, but they do find her car still in the parking lot, the wagon wheel. The vehicle was locked. Uh, so her brother and her dad broke into the car. The steering column was locked, so they had to pop it to be able to pull it uh, home because the keys were not in the car either, and neither was her purse. Her shoes were in the back seat, however. Faye is reported missing, and it appears that not much happens in terms of an investigation. I think this was one of those cases where police say, you know, She's an adult, and she probably just ran off with some guy. I'm here to tell you, they hardly ever just run off with some guy. Now, don't get me wrong, it does happen, but it certainly doesn't seem like that's what's going on in this case. So Faye's family even said, sure, Faye was no angel. She did have a bit of a wild streak in 1983, but when it came to that baby, 
he wouldn't have left her. Five years after Faye was last seen, she was declared legally dead, but she has not been positively located to this day. But this story doesn't end here, and here comes the twists that I warned you about. In 2006, about 23 years after Faye's disappearance, it looked as if her family may get some answers. Self-proclaimed serial killer uh, Robert Charles Brown confessed to killing Faye. At the time, he had already pled guilty to two homicides, which included the murder of another still missing person, C.O. Sperry. Uh, Sperry disappeared from Colorado in 1987 and still has not been found. According to him, he met Faye in the wagon wheel that night. He claimed he later went to her apartment and walked into her bedroom while she was sleeping. How did he know where she lived? Well, Brown was the maintenance man for the apartment complex in Cushada where Faye lived. Oh, and he was her neighbor. Anyway, he said he went into her bedroom while she was sleeping, covered her mouth with a chloroform-soaked rag, and went off to find some rope to tie her up. He claimed that when he came back, Faye was dead, so he just dumped her body off of a bridge into the Red River. Brown also claimed to have killed two other women in Red River Parish, and this fool claims to have committed 47 other murders across the United States. Investigators looked for evidence to verify his stories about Faye and the other two Red River girls, but they have found very little indication that his story was at all true. Brown was never charged in connection to Faye's disappearance or the other two murders. Now I'm going to tell you why this confession doesn't work for me and for a lot of people on the internet. If Faye did make it home to her apartment, why was her car still at the bar? And she said she was getting her daughter, but we know her daughter was never picked up. Now, some running theories are that she was too drunk to drive, so she walked home. As a drunk person, that would, that would seem like a long walk. And if she was walking, I assume someone would have seen her. If she was drunk, that may also explain why she never picked up her daughter. But why would she tell her friends she was going to pick up her daughter and then just decide to miraculously get home and go to sleep? And certainly, if she had decided not to pick up her baby, she would have called her mother and told her or let her know somehow. I'm not buying it, and I know that I'm not the only one. I don't think Faye made it out of the parking lot of that bar willingly and of her own accord. Then we know in 2013 that they want to exhume the Hancock County Dango's body, as I spoke about in Nelda's case. They also had some of the similar distinguishing physical marks and details as this doe, but so did Nelda. They were planning on comparing both Faye and Nelda's DNA to that of the Jane, but we know how that turned out. So there is another dead end. Faye is, of course, still missing, although she is legally declared deceased. If you do know anything about the disappearance of Faye Aline Self, please contact the Red River Sheriff's Office or the Louisiana State Police 
and help Faye's family, including her daughters, get some closure. So that's going to conclude part one of episode 31. I hope that you enjoyed all of the cases that I told you about in this episode, but make sure you are paying attention for the release of part two in a couple of weeks. Still have some very interesting cases to tell you. Um, so pay attention for that. You can reach out on social media. The old Facebook page, the never to be seen again, Facebook page is still up for now. Um, also the email address uh, never to be seen again podcast at gmail.com is still up and running. So you can send emails there. Um, but there is also a second email address for the new name, which is state of missing pod at gmail.com. So if you have any case suggestions, uh, any, any questions or anything like that, go ahead and send them on over there. Uh, we are working on building up some more social media presence. So when that comes to fruition, I will definitely let you know about it. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and do me a favor. Go ahead, rate, review, subscribe on whatever platform it is that you listen on. The more uh, positive reviews I have, the more this podcast <clears throat> climbs up the charts and gets me more recognized, gets these cases more recognized. So if you like it, go ahead and do that for me. Tell your friends, um, let everyone you know, know about this podcast. Remember, it is now State of Missing. It is no longer Never to be Seen Again, although I'm pretty sure that uh, you can still find it under that name uh, in some places. So thank you for listening. Thank you for continuing to listen. Please uh, rate, review, subscribe on any platform, whatever platform you listen on. Uh, I'm so appreciative to everybody who tunes in to listen. Um, and I hope that now that we have this little reboot, it comes out better than ever. So uh, please stick around and thank you for being patient with me. Hope that you continue to tune in to hear these new episodes. Um, so thank you to all the listeners out there. If you haven't already done so, you can go ahead and follow the Never To Be Seen Again podcast Facebook page. I'll be posting the pictures on there for now, but I'll also be letting you know if I create a new social media for with the new name so that you could be redirected there as long as you're paying attention as long as you're paying attention to the Never To Be Seen Again podcast Facebook page. Um, other than that, you'll have to wait a couple of weeks until I uh, make an announcement on the next episode. So um, carry, carry yourself on over there to the Facebook and uh, make sure you keep up with the updates for the next two weeks just in case uh, I do something in the meantime. So thank you for tuning in. Please come back in two weeks to listen to part two. It's going to be a good one. In the meantime, feel free to send over those case suggestions. If someone in your family or someone you know, or you have a personal connection to a missing person, go ahead, send that name on over. You don't have to do any of the research. I'll do that for you. Um, if you want to send me a little note uh, to you know, tell me what your connection is or whatever, um, please feel free to do so. Um, but definitely reach out. I love it when that happens. As I'm always looking for good cases. So 
um, I'll be back in two weeks with the release of part two. And I hope that you're all here to hear it. Um, thanks everyone for listening. Theta Missing out. Bye.